Good morning, Hope Ames. It is so good to be with you here this morning. My name is Danny Householder. I'm the campus pastor here at Hope Ames, and it's just a joy to be with you. I don't know about you, but I'm still kind of riding the thrill wave that was Easter. Was anybody here with us last weekend for Easter? How amazing was that? Was that so fun? Oh, that was so fun. Um, yeah, praise God for it. Why not? Um, if I were to thank every single person that needs to be thanked uh, here from the stage this morning, we wouldn't have time to get to the sermon. But uh, to our amazing staff, to our incredible volunteers who made that uh, absolutely wonderful morning possible, and then the services that were in Holy Week that led up to Easter Sunday, let's give God praise for them. That was awesome. Well, this morning, uh, you just heard Matthew sing an offering song that you wouldn't typically hear sung in church. It's a song about doubt, saying, Jesus, I have my doubts. If you've been around Hope for very long, you know that we don't shy away from questions. We don't shy away from doubts. In my almost four years of working for Hope, I think that this is probably my fourth sermon, um, at least, that I've preached on doubt. It's something that we should talk about, that we ought to talk about. Earlier this morning, we sang, Waymaker, Miracle Worker, even when I don't see it, you're working, even when I don't feel it, you're working, you never stop, you never stop working, and it's true. And then there are times when I also have my doubts. It's true. It's real. As Christians, I think that it's important that we talk about our doubts. So I want to start this morning simply by telling you this. If you are a person who's dealing with doubt currently, if you are a person who has ever dealt with doubt in your faith, whether you're a person who, who today considers yourself a Christian or a person who just simply has never considered themselves a Christian, I want you to know you're not spiritually defected for having doubts. It is normal to have doubts. In fact, in the Bible, we see people with doubts all the time. Take a look at this on the next slide here. These are just a few examples of doubt doubters that we have in the Bible. By the way, if you want to read books on doubt, go ahead and turn to Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, the book of Job, plenty of the Psalms. It's all over the Bible. Abraham and Sarah in Genesis, they doubt when God says that they're going to have a child in their old age. There's Gideon who's doubting God when God promises Gideon, in, Gideon a victory in battle. There's David, King David, who doubts. This is King David, the guy who struck down Goliath. We've got Peter, one of Jesus' most fiery disciples. He doubts when he's walking out on the water. He's filled with doubt and he starts to sink in the water. Jesus asks him, why did you doubt me? You've got Mary. This is a surprising one that you might see on this list. But right after Mary receives news that she's going to be the mother of God in the flesh, she goes and she seeks community. She goes and she spends three months at her cousin Elizabeth's house. Doubt can oftentimes lead us to a healthy place. It's accountability. Doubt is not in and of itself a bad thing at all. John the Baptist doubts in Matthew chapter 11. He sends his followers to go ask Jesus, are you actually the one or should we go looking for someone else? John the Baptist, he doubts. Jesus' own brothers doubt him. We see that in John chapter 7. The point that I'm trying to make is this. Doubt does not mean that you've got problems. Doubt means that you are simply following the normal rhythm of spiritual life. It is not just common to have doubts, but it is expected to have doubts. The Bible shows that some of the fiercest, most loyal and faithful believers, they had doubts. It's okay to have doubts. Somebody asked me recently, when was the last time that you doubted? And I said, doubted what? Because we doubt things all the time. I doubt lots of simple things. I doubt that I will ever see the Chicago Bears win a Super Bowl in my lifetime. I just, I'm just doubting it. You are doubting that I'll finish the sermon on time. I am too. <laughs> we doubt lots of stuff. It's normal. It happens. 
But in all honesty, when the person asked me, okay, so when was the last time that you doubted? And I wasn't even trying to be facetious about it. I looked at my watch and I said, most recently, a couple hours ago. I doubt my salvation more than I want to. I consider myself a Christian, right? I'm a pastor. I believe this stuff. I really do. But I also doubt. I doubt whether my sins are forgiven. Sometimes I wonder when I'm praying if anyone's out there listening. It's part of the rhythm of our faith life. Doubt is not something that we have to run away from. Doubt is something that we can actually use to develop our faith. More importantly than that, doubt is something that God can use to develop our faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Did you know that? Unbelief is the opposite of faith. In a lot of ways, fear, the thing that stops us, is the opposite of faith. But doubt is a part of faith. In fact, faith insinuates doubt. The word for, for faith in the New Testament is pistis, and it does quite literally mean faith, but it also means God's divine persuasion. It's a case that God makes to show that God loves you. God is inviting us. He doesn't force his love upon us, but instead he gives us this divine persuasion, this divine case to say, I love you. Here's all the evidence. I love you. Here's my case. It's a reasonable conclusion. God, I trust that you love me. And yet there are days when we doubt. In fact, I will tell you this. If there's ever a day where you have no doubt whatsoever, you will know that you're in heaven. Doubt is a part of our life. Doubt is something that we go through. I'm sure that there are some Christians out there who don't deal with doubt at all, but I haven't met one yet. You're not weird. You're not spiritually defected. You are on this journey called faith. Faith insinuates doubt. It's part of it. But faith also, like I said, can be developed by doubt because doubt leads us to ask questions, doesn't it? God's not afraid of your questions. If God defeated death, he's not intimidated by your doubt. I had one, uh, one uh, mentor pastor who told me, Jesus is a big boy. You can ask your questions to him. I love the way that goes. Jesus is not afraid of our doubts. At the very least, doubt will lead us to communication with God. And communication with God leads to good things. And so God can use our doubt to develop our faith. I think that's amazing. I think that's an incredible gift that God's willing to give us. So let's go ahead. And if you've got your Bible today, you can open up to John chapter 20. If you've got your Bible app, you can open up to John chapter 20. And we're going to learn about one of the most famous doubters in the history of the world. In fact, when, you, when I say the word doubting, some of you might be urged to finish that with Thomas. Doubt, doubting Thomas, right? I'm talking about doubting Thomas. Yeah, I'm talking about doubting Thomas. And I think it's kind of unfortunate and unfair that he's called doubting Thomas. He had one bad day. Imagine if you had one bad day and everyone knew you as that for the rest of your life. I'd be crying Dan because someone saw me stub my toe. Man, crying Dan, he just never gets over it. But Thomas was dealing with some doubts. Thomas was one of the 12 disciples, but he was not with the other disciples when Jesus first appeared to the disciples on Easter Sunday. He was missing. It's not that Thomas was weird. Maybe it's that Thomas was different. He was dealing with the mourning, the loss of Jesus differently than others. And now he is in doubt. But Jesus is going to use this doubt to transform Thomas and not to hinder his faith, not to deteriorate his faith, but to develop his faith. It is incredible how sometimes the things that we're so afraid of can actually be used 
to turn into great joy. The most recent time that I was in the dentist's office, um, I didn't have any context for what was happening, but as I'm sitting in the waiting room, the door opens from the back where you know, patients go and all that stuff, and this little girl is holding onto her mom's hand, and I, I, don't know, I don't know the context, but she's saying, you were right, it was all true, you were right. And I'm just laughing to myself, because I'm thinking like, I wonder what that conversation was like before they went in. Like, was the mom, like, having the, was she talking to her, saying, like, I, I know it can be kind of scary. I know, I know you're doubting that this is going to be fun at all. I know that going back there and sitting in the chair and you hear about the tools, it can be really intimidating. I know you're afraid, but I promise it's going to be okay. In fact, maybe it'll be fun. I'm picturing all this happening in my mind. And to this little girl's great joy, when she comes out, she is celebrating. You were right. It's all true. You were right. It's funny how sometimes when our biggest doubts meet their match, when our biggest doubts meet the truth, it leads to great joy. It leads to great development. And in fact, we're even more full of joy. We're able to experience the fullness of the glory even more because we did once upon a time doubt. We did experience what it was like to worry about it. And now we're brought to the truth and we have freedom, we have joy. And now the doubt is used for glory. The doubt is used for extra joy. I mean, if that little girl hadn't been scared at all, if she had no doubt whatsoever, but was like, this is gonna be nothing, she'd be walking out like, boring. But she walked out with joy because her doubts were transformed. Watch Jesus transform Thomas's doubt. The doubter. Thomas was a believer though, right? Again, he gets a rough nickname. Maybe it's a little bit unfair. But he was a believer. He was committed. In fact, in some ways, he seems to show that he's more committed than any of these, the other disciples at certain moments. In John chapter... Um, and John, well, here, let me, let's just go ahead and say this. Thomas says, I won't believe this unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers in them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. And now in John chapter 11, though... We've got Thomas, who's full of faith. Right, right here, he's full of doubt. But then right here, he's full of faith. Thomas was a believer. He was committed. Like, let's not always say that, okay, just because you're full of doubt, you can't be a believer, that you can't be committed to Jesus. Thomas is committed to Jesus. He does believe. He shows it in John chapter 11. Jesus is saying, let's go back to Judea. He's going back to a place where the last time he was there, everybody wanted to stone him to death. They wanted to kill him. And now Jesus is saying, all right, let's go back to Judea. He wants to go see his friend Lazarus, who has died. Jesus is going to raise him from the dead. It's going to be this incredible miracle. And all of Jesus' disciples say, no, you can't go. That's crazy. They're going to kill you there. But Thomas, the doubter, he says, let's go to and die with Jesus. He is so committed to Jesus. You can be simultaneously doubting and committed to Jesus. It's not either or. Doubt is a part of the faith journey, and Thomas shows it here. Let's go too, and let's die with Jesus. He is so committed to Jesus, he's willing to go into death. He willingly walks into a place that will serve as his death sentence because he's so committed to Jesus. Yes, the doubter, Thomas. In John chapter 14, Thomas shows some more faith as well. Um, Jesus is sitting down with his disciples. It's their last supper. And Jesus is telling them, I'm about to go away now. But then he tells them, but don't worry. You know how to get to the place where I'm going. Remember this. You know how to get to that place. Now, Thomas, 
asks the question that's on everyone else's mind. Thomas says, no, we don't know, Lord. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? Thomas is committed, and he's also curious. He's not just going to settle with not knowing, with not understanding. He wants to know. He's committed to knowing, so he asks a question boldly. And Jesus, faithfully and honorably and lovingly, responds to him, Yes, Thomas, you do know the way. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. Thomas was committed to Jesus. Thomas was curious about Jesus. And so Thomas took his doubts to Jesus. He asked him the question. It doesn't mean that he's spiritually defected. It doesn't mean that he's not a faithful person. It means that he's secure. I'll tell you this. When I was getting toward the end of high school, I was feeling insecure about my faith. And so I got really into Christian apologetics. And I still have some bit of admiration for apologetics, but Christian apologetics is basically um, reasonable argumentation for why Jesus rose from the dead. And I still, again, like I said, I've got some admiration for it. I've got respect for it. But I found that it was only leading me into silly arguments. And I say that they were silly because nobody has ever been brought to faith by losing a fight. I just don't think it works like that. And what I found was not only was I not helping somebody else, but I was hurting myself. The reason why I felt like I had to fight with this stuff, the reason why I felt like, no, you can't question the faith, and said you need to only pile up arguments in favor of this, you can never question it, is because I was insecure. I wasn't secure enough to ask questions. Instead, I just had to fight. I had to get angry. But that didn't help anybody. Thomas, on the other hand, is in a place of security. He's in the face of the one who loves him. The one who has shown that he cares for him. The one who has presented this case for him to say, I love you, Thomas. So he feels safe in that space to say, yes, I'm doubting, but I'm going to ask you about this. Who do you, who do you take your doubts to? If you have doubts about me, I hope that you take them to me. Thomas has doubts about Jesus. He takes them to Jesus. Who do you know who asks questions? Do you remember when the last time you were in a meeting or you were in class and the boss or the teacher is explaining something that's going completely over your head and you so desperately want to ask, what are you talking about? But in you know, fear of getting found out, you just nod your head, uh-huh, yeah. Two of the smartest people that I know um, it's my sister Christy and her husband Dan. They are brilliant. They're so painfully smart that I wonder how I'm possibly the same species as them. They're so brilliant. Um, Christy is an occupational therapist. She just aced her way through graduate school. Her husband Dan is a, uh, he just graduated medical school at the University of Iowa. He is in his first year of residency at the Children's Hospital in Iowa City, which is where Christy works as well. Dan has been at the top of every class and every test that he's ever taken. These two are so smart. But something that always stands out to me about these two is they ask more questions than anyone I've ever met in my life. Part of it is because they're genuinely interested in the person in front of them and what they're talking about. Like they're genuine, kind, uh, and compassionate people. They want to know about the person in front of them. But also because they're just curious learners. It's not because they're not as smart as everyone else in the room, but sometimes they will ask so many questions that they bring the conversation down to a crawling pace. And for those of us who are in the room with them, we're like, thank you for asking. Keep asking. That's good. It's like when you're in the classroom, you're begging for someone else to ask the question that you want to ask, but you won't. They ask those questions not because they're not as smart as everyone else in the room, but because they're secure. 
They're not afraid of how they're going to look. They're wondering. They're curious. They're committed to finding the truth. Thomas is committed to finding the truth with Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And so Thomas is going to ask about it. If he's going to commit his life to Jesus, he's going to find out what he's committing his life to. And so you can do the same thing. If you commit your life to Jesus, go ahead and ask Jesus questions. You can do this. Jesus welcomes it. So Thomas asks the questions. He tells his friends, I'm not going to believe this unless I can touch the wounds in his hands. I can put my finger inside the piercing in his side. I'm going to have to do that. Now, I don't think that Myers-Briggs personality tests were a big thing back when Jesus was walking the earth. But if you had to guess on Thomas, you would say, okay, well, Thomas is, is probably a sensing personality instead of an intuitive personality. He seems to want the physical realities before he admits that something is true instead of just going off of intuition. And that's fair. He's got every right to ask for that. I want to see it. I want to feel this. I want to see the physical reality of it. Seems like he's going for intellect at first glance. But a deeper look into the passage shows that Thomas is going for something deeper than just evidence, physical evidence, than just intellect. I mean, it is fair to ask for those things. It really is. But Thomas seems to be going for something deeper than that. Thomas has been following Jesus for a long time. He's seen a lot of things with his eyes. He's seen a lot of things come to life. Like he knows. He knows who Jesus is. But he's still dealing with doubt. And what is it? What's the reason for it? How did Thomas go from being this committed, curious, questioning guy to now saying, I've lost it. I'm done. I don't want to be a part of this anymore. I'd have to see it. I'd have to touch it. How does he get from that place? Well, I don't think that you can necessarily blame him because these are questions that we ask today. When was the last time you opened your Bible? When was the last time, when was the last time that you read the story of Jesus? I don't mean to just say like, okay, well, if the Bible says it, therefore you have to believe it. But I mean, really, what does God's word say about God? I mean, we go to all sorts of different things to ask our questions about God, but are we going to God? Are we following what Thomas did? Are we following the example that Jesus welcomed? Thomas heard it from his friends. He heard it from eyewitnesses. He's having like reasonable cases brought to him. Hey, we saw him. We saw him with our own eyes. Did you know that the same eyewitness accounts that we're telling Thomas, Jesus rose from the dead, are the same eyewitness accounts that you can read right here? Same eyewitness accounts you can read. See, we say all the time, like, I'd have to see it to believe it, but we believe all sorts of things that we don't see. I think back to my history classes in high school, and there's not a single historical event that I learned about that I saw with my own eyes, but I read it from eyewitness accounts, right? In fact, I don't know that I've ever seen a historical event in my life. I did see Devin Hester return a kickback in the Super Bowl once. It was really cool, but that's maybe it. That's maybe it. But I believe all sorts of things that I haven't seen. And I can believe them because of eyewitness accounts. They've written them down. And so we have it here. We have these eyewitness accounts, and they're trying to tell Thomas, Thomas, We've seen it. You can believe it. And here's the God of word, the word of God telling you today, you can believe this. We've seen it. See, people put their reputation on the line for this. Paul, who's writing just 20 years after Jesus had died, writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's talking about Jesus here. He was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Paul is saying, you can go ahead and test my reputation by asking the people down the road. 
They remember this. There's 500 of them. And if they all say, no, nah, it didn't really happen, then come back to me. And you can rip apart anything that I've ever written. But there are eyewitness accounts. Go ahead. Listen to them. Trust them. Put the reputation on the line. See, we believe things that we don't see all the time because we have credible sources for it. And so you have that here with the word of God. But still, I, I, I think that it's deeper than that. What's Thomas really doubting? Is Thomas just doubting because of intellect? If we want to get into that debate, fine. I mean, there is evidence of the resurrection. And if that's, your, if that's the thing that you're looking for today, I've got books I can recommend to you. Read The Case for Christ. Read Simply Christian by N.T. Wright. Read these books. They're, they're awesome. Check them out. But, it, but it's deeper than that. There are also sorts of arguments that we can throw out there, right? I mean, Thomas, he had all sorts of reasons to believe in the resurrection, but it wasn't coming together for him. It was deeper than intellect. Something that might surprise you is that some of the smartest people in the world really do believe in the resurrection of Jesus. This is not just for the academically uh, challenged people who, like, can't, who, who haven't gone to school for long enough, right? And they've just been blinded to these things. They're like scholars, people in the medical community, people in the historical community. They believe this stuff. Atheists and Christian scholars alike, there are certain things that they agree on that might surprise you. One of the things that they agree on about the life of Jesus is that there really was a man named Jesus who claimed to be the Son of God. Another thing that they agree on is that there are people who believed Jesus when he said he was the Son of God. A third thing that they agree on is that Jesus was publicly killed. Not just beaten, but publicly killed. And then the fourth thing that really might surprise you, that scholars agree on, whether they are in Christian circles or atheist circles, is that there was an empty tomb. Thomas knows all these things. There's an empty tomb. There was, there's Jesus. He claimed to be God. People believed that he was God. I was one of them, Thomas said at one point. He, had, he died, and now there's an empty tomb, but my, I don't know. Those are four things that scholars all agree on. Now, that last thing there, is the, is, the, is the tomb empty? There have been all sorts of different ideas that have been brought up for why the tomb was empty. But really, what, what's the reasonable reason for why it was empty? Maybe it was the dogs who found a way to break a seal and move a tomb and, and, and stole a body away. That doesn't sound very reasonable. Maybe it was the women who found a way to fend off 12 Roman guards. And then they took the body, but that doesn't seem reasonable either. Well, maybe it was the disciples who gathered up and they took on the guards, the same disciples who were in hiding because they were scared that Jesus' death would mean death for them too. What could the Roman Empire have done about this? The Roman Empire, their entire reputation was on the line if they couldn't prove that Jesus was still dead. The, the Jewish establishment, their reputation was on the line if they couldn't prove Jesus was still dead. We're running out of reasonable options, and so maybe perhaps it is true that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead, and there are people who saw him. But what is your heart really seeking in this? What is your heart really after? Maybe our heart is after what Thomas's heart was after. See, I find it interesting that when I have conversations with people about doubt, who are wrestling with their faith, wondering if they can believe in this, it's almost never intellectual. It's almost never academic. It's personal. I read an article on BuzzFeed this weekend. I don't, I don't even know if you could really call it an article as much as it is just kind of a 
thing where they shared posts from forums and stuff. And it was 25 different people who talked about why they stopped believing in God. Out of the 25 reasons, only one was an intellectual reason. The rest were personal. The rest were reasons like, I experience constant fear. I see the damage done by religion. I see I experienced unanswered prayers. We've experienced infertility. I've seen bad marriages. Physical and mental suffering are real things. Spiritual abuse. I've seen too many loved ones die. It's not intellectual, but it's personal. I think it was personal for Thomas. It goes beyond the let me see it with my eyes, but it's let me feel it with my heart. Where are you, God? Why have you left me? Why do I feel alone? Why aren't you fixing things? It's personal. You made big promises to me. Think about the promises that, that Thomas heard. Think about all the things that he was told. Expect that these things will all come true. That same night when Jesus is having that meal with his disciples, when Thomas dares to ask the question, where are you going? Jesus makes a big promise. He says, no, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus was Thomas's teacher. And then Jesus's group, they're, all certain, they're, they're, like, they're getting traction. They're getting fame. Jesus seems like he truly is this Messiah that's been promised for a long time. A deliverer who's supposed to redeem God's people and set them free. Give them liberation. He says, I'll come back for you. I'll be here for you. I'll adopt you as my own. Big promise. And then things start to fall apart. Imagine what Thomas saw. He's sitting there at that dinner, big promise, and just in a few moments, Jesus is going to start about being betrayed and arrested and handing his life over. Thomas would then follow Jesus into a garden where Jesus is going to go pray. Next thing he knows, all these claims are coming to truth. They're coming to reality where Jesus is actually being arrested. They drag him to the courts. They put him on trial. The Bible tells us that many of Jesus' disciples were following Jesus from a distance. What did Thomas see? As he sees, them, as he sees him on trial, is he seeing his own life slip away? As he sees them pierce his hands with spikes, for all intents and purposes, those spikes are going through his hands too. As they're seeing Jesus have his side pierced, and the water and the blood is separated to prove that he's dead, Thomas sees those wounds and he believes they're ruining his life. Sure, they're killing Jesus, but it sure seems like it's ruining Thomas's life. So now when his friends are saying, hey, we saw him, he's risen from the dead. That's just too personal now. He made promises to me. It didn't come true. Thomas thought that he had found his purpose. He thought he had found his way. He thought that he had found meaning in his life. In fact, maybe he felt like his meaning, his purpose, and his way had found him. But now he just felt lost, alone. And he wondered, can any of it come true? Maybe Jesus was wrong about it all. In the last few years, I've had the opportunity to sit by people 
um, in some really broken places. I've lost count of how many hospice beds I've sat next to, how many families I've prayed with as someone's nearing the end of their life. And sometimes it's a really beautiful moment um, where the family gets together, we pray, and it's full of hope. It's wonderful. I mean, it inspires you. It's a very, very sad thing, but you're also left inspired. But can I just tell you, be vulnerable about a fear of mine? There are some beds that I sit by, and there was one pretty recently. I sat next to a man in between breaths that he's just laboring to get out, knowing that he would probably die within a few days. He just wheezed out of his system. He said, I'm scared. What's going to happen to me? And I live this life trusting in Jesus. I live this life following Jesus. I live this life committed to Jesus. I live this life curious about Jesus. I live this life asking Jesus questions. Do you know what I'm scared of? I'm scared that at the end of my life I'm going to be doubting. What then? Such a hard question to answer. What's going to happen to me? The good news is that our doubts do not influence God's promise. Our doubts do not influence God's promises. When God says something, it happens. God is always true to God's word. My doubts do not influence God's promises. My doubts do not scare God. Jesus is a big boy and he's willing to deal with my questions. And what did Jesus promise Thomas? He said, I will not leave you. I will come to you. I will adopt you as my own. And so as I sat next to this man's bed, I, I just told him, I said, I, I said, Jesus is going to show you how much he loves you. And you are going to be so happy. And yes, I live this life with some doubts. Yes, I live this life with unanswered questions. But my doubts and my questions do not influence God's promise. God's promise remains true. And he promised you he would come back for you. He promised you he would make you his own. He is making his case and he is showing it to you to say, I love you. Do you believe me? Allow me to persuade you. Let me show you how much I love you. Jesus is going to show you how much he loves you. And you will be so happy. And all of your doubts and all of your questions will be answered with truth. See, it happened for Thomas. It's eight days after the resurrection and Thomas still hadn't seen the risen Jesus. But lo and behold, when he finally gathers with his other friends, Jesus appears in the room. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, this happened a week ago, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Jesus enters a room and his purpose is to give peace to our weary and doubtful souls. To give us the answers that we've been longing to hear for all of our lives. 
He shows up. He's standing in front of Thomas. Here he is. Thomas, this sensing personality. I need to see it if I'm going to believe it. So here he is, the real physical Jesus standing in front of Thomas. And what is Jesus going to do about that? Is Jesus going to rebuke him? Say, ah, you doubted me, so my promises aren't coming true for you. Ah, you asked too many questions, and now I'm offended. No, Jesus is not scared of our questions, and he is not threatened by our doubts, but instead he brings peace to our souls. He brings this into your life because he, maintain, because he holds on to his promises. He keeps his promises. It's as if he's standing in front of Thomas. He says, Thomas, come on, check me out. Do you want to know if I was right? Jesus says something peculiar to Thomas. He says, look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. How did Jesus know? How did Jesus know what Thomas had been asking for? Remember, Thomas was saying, I will not believe unless I can put my finger in the holes in his hands, unless I can touch the the piercing in his side. That's the only way I'm going to believe. How did Jesus know that's what Thomas was asking for? He was listening. He was always listening. When Thomas was asking, Jesus was listening. When Thomas was wandering, Jesus was following. When Thomas thought that he was lost, Jesus had his eyes on him. Thomas was still, still within the reach of his Savior. Not going anywhere. Jesus says, look at my hands. Look at my wounded hands. Now that's interesting too. Why would Jesus, resurrected body and all, have wounds in his hand, have a wound in his side? The rest of his body is complete. He's made whole. What's going on with the wounds? Remember the last time that Thomas saw those wounds? He believed that those wounds were ruining his life. And it's as if Jesus is standing there and saying, the things that you thought were ruining your life have saved your life. And so it is with us. The worst things... The things that we believe are ruining our life. It's not that God sends them into our life. It's not that God sends death into our life. It's not that God sends sin into our life. It is that God is dealing with the sin, with the death, and with the bad things that we believe are ruining us. And he deals with them in a way that saves us. He uses the very things that are the worst things in the world to us to save us. Look at the case that God is presenting before you today. Look at his hands. Look at his wounds. Touch the piercing in his side. And see how it transforms the heart of a doubter. It says that Thomas looks at Jesus and he says, My Lord and my God. This is the first time throughout the entire book of John that anyone has looked at Jesus to his face and called him God. The doubter does it. Can you believe it? The doubter does it. The doubter looks Jesus in the face and calls him God. Are you ready for Jesus to transform you? Are you ready for Jesus to use your doubts in a way that will not deteriorate your faith, but instead will develop your faith? Look at the real evidence. I'm not just talking about the intellectual evidence, that's one thing, but look at the real evidence, the evidence that really matters. 
Like, let's go ahead. Let's walk through Thomas's life, dealing with doubt. If we're going to look at it really practically, there are the questions, and Thomas asks them. Go ahead. Ask the questions. There are the eyewitness accounts. Excuse my really corny eyes there that I've drawn. But there are the eyewitness accounts, and Thomas needs to listen to them. And so do we. Let's listen to them. But then there are the wounds of Jesus. And Jesus says, go ahead and look at them. See the wounds. And Jesus has invited Thomas to touch them, to do exactly what Thomas had been asking for. But take a look at the text. Nowhere does it say that Thomas actually touched Jesus. It doesn't say that he touched him. Why? This is what he'd been asking for the whole time. Why wouldn't he just reach out and complete the answer? Go ahead, touch him, Thomas. Know that it's real. Because Thomas saw the wounds. And when Thomas saw the wounds, he saw that it was not just evidence that Jesus had physically risen from the dead, although he had, and it was so important. But even more importantly, the wounds were evidence that Jesus loved him. See God's love for you. See God's divine persuasion, his case. Everything that he has presented before you to say, I love you and I care for you. It's as if Jesus is saying to Thomas, see Thomas, see, do you see it? And as if Thomas is saying back without having to touch him, but instead saying, my Lord, my God, I trust you. I see the wounds. They're not just evidence that you've physically risen from the dead, but they're evidence that you love me and you've won a victory over my fear, over my doubt. And now Thomas can say, you were right. It was all true. It was all true. I was so scared, but it was all true. And this is what gives me hope in the face of my doubt. Even if my worst fear comes true, even if in the end of my life I am doubting, even if at the end of my life I am scared, and I'm wondering what's going to happen to me next. And I believe that the worst thing that could happen to me would be for my eyes to close for the last time. It would ruin my life, right? But I know that God can use the things that I believe is ruining my life for his glory and for my faith to develop. And I can know that in an instant, in an instant, the thing that I thought was going to ruin my life will only wake me up and I will see Jesus standing before me and say, I told you. And I can say, oh, you were right. You kept your promise. It was all true. You love me. My heart is so happy. My soul is so full of joy. And it will happen for you too. God has made you a promise. And your doubts do not influence that promise. But God will use your doubts to develop your faith. And one day when your doubts have to face the truth, it will only mean more joy. Because all of your fears will come untrue. And you will see your risen Savior saying, look at my hand. Look at my side. See my wounds. And we will say, my Lord, my God, it was all true. You were right. Our doubts don't influence his promise. He is right. It will all come true. Let's stand and let's sing. Give God praise for this promise that will come true. Amen. Amen.